As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined... As always, by Bruce Feldman after a very eventful week four in college football. And, and Bruce, there were two results on Saturday that I wanted to bring up right off the bat. Um, we do now have, with our new Super Duper production and the help of our producer, John Hayes, the ability to actually insert sound clips into the podcast. So I wanted to play a couple for you here right off the bat. Okay, first up. This is from our podcast last week leading into the Michigan-Wisconsin game. I think Michigan is going to respond to this pressure spotlight. I really do. And I know I've been believing in them. I will concede this. After calling around and talking to some coaches, I am more confident in Ohio State now than I was probably a month ago after seeing what they've been able to do. But I still believe Michigan is going to have a really, really good year. And when I say a really, really good year, I think they can be a top five kind of team. Stu, you're breaking out the technology on me for this, huh? You've done you, after all after all the times I've had your back, all the times I've had your back with all the stuff Andy has said about you, with all the stuff Dan Uthman has said about you. This is how you do me. I feel, I feel hurt. Well, I got good news for you, my friend. I've got another bit of technology that's going to make you feel a lot better. There was something you said after week two that at the time I was like, that's the craziest thing you've ever said on the podcast. Crazy like a fox, my friend. Cue it up. I'm pretty confident that at some point UCLA will get it going and they will sail, they will run run it down people's throats in ways that they won't be able to, to handle the counter punches because I just think eventually this stuff is going to click and that it will work. Woo boy, did it ever. Pac-12 after dark. Yeah, at around 11 o'clock Eastern time. Not 11 o'clock Eastern time. It was probably, what, midnight Eastern time before. I think it was three minutes left in the third quarter and all of a sudden it was like an onslaught of offense. 50, 50 second half points by the Bruins. It, I mean, I don't know if, if this is exactly the way you saw it happening, but you pretty much are a prophet because all of a sudden, the team that couldn't crack 14 points in the first three weeks, all of a sudden, Dorian Thompson-Robinson could do no wrong. 
and they end up beating Washington State 67-63 to in a game in which the other team's quarterback threw for nine touchdowns and lost. Let's stay on UCLA for a minute while I'm basking in the glow of my, my prophecy as opposed to my pain. Um, what is interesting to me on, on this with UCLA, and I think there's going to be a bunch of two steps forward, one step back with them at this point, because I still don't think they have enough up front. Their offensive line is a couple of true freshmen out there, and I just think that it's, it's not a very simple system that they're going to be jumping into. I think they're building for something down the road. But Dorian Thompson-Robinson, he has a big arm. He's very dynamic athlete. I think in terms of a lot of the other stuff, he hadn't played quarterback that much. Remember, he was only a quarterback at Bishop Borman for one year, and he didn't play a lot last year because of injury, and they had Wilton Spade. So he's still fi- figuring it out. But he has gotten better from week one, where he wasn't very good. Week two, he was actually pretty good. Against Oklahoma, he did some decent things, but they just were kind of a little off. And then he really got it cranked up in the second half last uh, on Saturday night. And I thought what was interesting was there was a couple of things early in the game where there, there was things that looked relatively easy that they, they struggled with. They couldn't kind of get out of their own way a couple of times on, on key third downs or a touchdown play that they had you know, drawn up pretty easily. But I thought you saw him kind of get very comfortable in this moment. And the one thing that I... I when it got to be a 12-point game, 49-37, to 37, and it had been 49-17 to 17 before that, the thing that was in the back of my head that kind of moved to the front of my head is, I know Leach. Leach is not letting his foot off the gas. It's not going to be like game management and we're just going to squat on the clock. He's going to be a staying aggressive. He stayed aggressive, and the Bruins' defense started forcing turnovers and got more aggressive the more Leach got aggressive. And... To me, of all the Pac-12 after dark games, this was the craziest because you can say there was more total yardage or or more passing yards in some games and and whatnot, but what was different was you had a team that just kind of woke up at at like 10 o'clock at night and all of a sudden just got going, and we hadn't seen anything from them before this. I mean, we'd seen a little bit here and there, but like you said, they had not scored more than 14 points in the first three games, and I think... One thing that is a relevant thing that sometimes we forget about is, quite honestly, UCLA had been in some games this season, whereas Washington State, they hadn't really played anybody other than Houston. Uh, And maybe that came back to bite them late in the game when it got tight. I appreciate all this really serious analysis about UCLA. At the end of the day, I don't think you can, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes the Pac-12 after dark gods operate in mysterious ways. And, uh there was another game a few years ago, Washington State, I think maybe five years ago now, Washington State, Cal, Cal High, Jared Goff, Connor Halliday threw for 700-something yards, and they lost. Um, I think the score on that one was 60-59. to 59. I would say that one and this one are the the pinnacles of Pac-12 after dark. And you know what was actually, I, I want to correct you. The most Pac-12 after dark game of all time was before there was Twitter. Do you know which game I'm thinking of? Um... USC Fresno State. Get it. That's right. Reggie Bush goes wild. I felt like I was watching that in a bar in New York City at like 1.45 in the morning. To me, that was a... Because you had a great team in a battle against a... I don't even know what we were calling group of five back then. And that was the first real one. It's a little different in that usually 
you know, present day Pac-12 after dark usually is teams that aren't national powers, right? There's a reason they're in that time slot. In that case, you know, that was the peak of the USC dynasty, the team that was being called the greatest of all time. And they almost lost to Fresno State. And I remember thinking like, boy, people are going to be really shocked when they wake up tomorrow morning and find out about this because it was no social media. It was you're going to find this out when you read it in the paper the next morning or maybe you go on ESPN.com. That, that was wild, no doubt about it. Hey, I'll go back to when I was in college in the late 90s. We would we would go to a bar and watch like Ryan Leaf against Brock Heward, you know, for uh, or Jake Plummer. Like they had some great 10.30 p.m. Eastern games on what was then Fox Sports Net. But the Pac-12 after dark is really a, a – a recent phenomenon, I would say, in the last five years or so, when it kind of became a kind of like Maction, but but more extreme than that. And, and I want to bring this up in a way to say, you know, one thing that I noticed on Saturday that bothered me a little bit was, okay, so so Utah loses on Friday night, Washington State loses on Saturday night, um, Arizona State suffers its first loss, Cal is now the only undefeated team left, and so it's all this. Well, Pac-12 is not going to make the playoff. You know, they suck again. And it's like, this is an example where the fixation on the playoff, which at the end of the day will only be four teams, I think causes some people to miss some really exciting parts of college football. I mean, there were some, you know, two of the better games of the weekend were USC-Utah Friday night with Matt Fink coming off the bench and throwing for, you know, just, just having the game of his life against Utah's secondary and then, you know, Cal going and, and uh, beating Ole Miss, goal line stand at the end, controversial call. Like, there's some really entertaining football being played in the Pac-12. Now, maybe none of their teams will go to the playoff. But don't just, like, dismiss the whole conference just because of that. I think they're having a really fun season so far. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I think that's a, that's a valid point. And, you know, look, I, I think sometimes we see – maybe the lowest common denominator in the in in the discussion part of this with all we what we see on social media and i'm not sure it's always the right thing because it's usually the most negative thing that catches our eye but we'll see i mean it's a long season and i think you and i are both guilty as probably as much as anybody of the overreactions to to one week or one thing and and i think that the truth on this though is if I were to ask you, if you were to handicap it right now, knowing what you know is the schedules that the teams have and who they played, who do you think do you think has the most realistic shot to be in a playoff contender on the West Coast? Um, I think maybe the only one left at this point. And look, I'm I'm you know I'm not detracting from Cal. I think it's uh, that they're. They have the, you know, now they have an offense to go with their defense. They have a chance to win a lot of games. Are they going to end up with a good enough record to go to the playoff? No. I think Oregon, because everybody saw them play Auburn, you know, right down to the wire, uh, if they can, you know, and they'll have to, they'll have to run the table. That's not easy. Um, but, you know, I think they've played very well in these last three games, especially the Stanford game the other night. They would have that respect, I think, if they were a twelve and one Pac twelve champ at the end. Dude, they haven't played anybody in the last three games. Let's let's be realistic here. Okay, well, who's your pick? Uh, I'm not totally disagreeing with you. I'm just saying, I mean, it's Nevada, Montana, and a Stanford team that's probably the worst Stanford team since maybe Jim Harbaugh's second year. So I think we got to pump the brakes a little bit on on so far on what they've done. On Monday morning, I stuck with I just put Washington in there. 
Um, I think Jacob Eason has been really impressive since that Cal game. Um, and USC is going to be a factor. I think their schedule is too tough to – they're not going to run the table. There's not. But they've shown so far that they're probably – you know, they're not nearly as bad as people thought they were going to be, especially with those receivers – and I think a defensive line that's been, you know, surprising. Uh, but they already did lose to BYU. So, I no, I don't think they're got any short, they have any sort of playoff shot. I think it's probably Washington to me. I mean, they lost a close game to a Cal team. I think it's, it's still going to need some help, no doubt about it. But I, if I would look at it right now, I would think they're the ones I think that have the best chance right now. But uh, we'll see. Obviously, Utah losing, I think, was was a significant uh, blow because I could see a path where they, if they had run the table, they could have they could have been that team waiting there. But who knows? One last thing I would say about the Pac-12 pylon, you know, obviously it's not good when you're losing to Mountain West teams, but it's not like for the most part, you know, maybe other than the margins of those UCLA games early on, they, I mean, they haven't had. The, the truly embarrassing nobody in the in the Pac-12 was losing to San Jose State or or uh, the Citadel or Eastern Michigan you know or Georgia State or Georgia State like I think that it's probably a more competitive conference than people give it credit to they just haven't had and this is going on three years now that that's superpower team that uh, you know gives you national credibility but I, I think, you know, there's been a lot of doom and gloom about that conference the last couple of years. I actually think it's shaping up to be a pretty entertaining race. And, you know, maybe I'm being an old, old-timer old uh, Midwesterner here, but I still care who goes to the Rose Bowl. So, um, you know, that, that race is on. Okay, turning the page. Let's get to the other soundbite you played. Okay, so Stu... <laughs> You had a column on Monday. I don't think you are in. You are the person who always goes doom and gloom. But it seems like from reading your column, you'd be very surprised if Michigan is anything better than eight and four this year after what you saw on Saturday. Am I correct to assume that? How could you possibly watch their first three games and think anything differently? Now, look, you can just like with UCLA. Any week, a team can figure things out and the light bulb goes off and they're a better team. But there's no more evidence that they're going to be that team at this point than anybody else. They, uh, As I wrote in the column, and for me, it goes back to last season. You know, I know you, you were ready to wipe the slate clean and pick them to big, win the Big Ten and Josh Gaddis is going to change everything. That Ohio State game just, you know, changed my perception entirely of Harbaugh and what was going on there. I, I was still very much in the camp of he's going to get it going. But what happened that day with the with the context of they were favored going to that game. They'd won 10 games in a row. This is finally their chance. Ohio State the week before had barely survived Maryland. This is finally their chance to beat them. And they get absolutely embarrassed. And then they get embarrassed again in the bowl game, albeit a game where a bunch of their guys skipped the bowl game to get ready for the draft the army game was alarming they did win it and then i think wisconsin's really good don't get me wrong and it's it's a little bit unfortunate that because of all the understandable um, harbaugh coverage of this game that maybe wisconsin's not getting enough credit but this is a team that has nothing going right now it'd be one thing if you know their defense was still dominant but the offense was struggling 
Jonathan Taylor and Jack Cohn shredded that defense the other day, just like Dwayne Haskins did last year. Um, and, and the offense is a mess. It has no identity. So that's what I was trying to figure out in that column Monday morning. Some five theories. What exactly has caused this program that I'm not, I was not one of the ones saying he's wildly overrated uh, prior to that Ohio State game last year. He'd won a lot of games. He clearly improved that program, but there's no question at this point. We have enough evidence at this point that is really trending in the wrong direction. Yeah, there's there's nothing short of blind faith that could make you say, okay, they're going to get this completely turned around. The part to me, if I was a Michigan fan, that would be the most disheartening was you had a bye week and this is what it looked like. That's the part that's like, whoa. It's not, I don't think it's, it would be disgraceful or embarrassing to to get whipped by a very good Wisconsin team on the road. It's just it was a bye week and they just really looked sloppy and didn't look prepared. And that I don't know how much that can change or how quickly that can change, but I I've seen enough college football to see to say this. I've seen a bunch of teams that have had some really bad losses early that have gotten better as the year went on. I mean, I don't know. I I would think that Michigan will get a lot better. I'm basing a lot on Ed Warner had an offensive line at Ohio State that was pretty bad at the beginning of a year, and then that group ended up, and there were obviously really good players, but they ended up developing into a really good offensive line that helped them win a national title. Now, there's no Ezekiel Elliott, I don't think. I, I wouldn't give Zach Charbonnet that much credit at this point. I think the big, a big concern right now is they're, they're really shaky at quarterback play. Both guys are banged up. It doesn't look like Dylan McCaffrey's even going to be able to play because when he went in the game, he took a vicious shot, and that was it for him for the game. And Shea Patterson has just really struggled. He struggled some last year in this system, in, in a different system, and now he's struggling in this system. It's not like they don't have really good receivers because they do have really good receivers. Uh, To go back like three steps back on this. So, and I'm going to do a column uh, this week on The Athletic about stuff I feel confident that I predicted in the preseason and stuff I don't feel so confident in in retrospect. And I have two things that run a parallel track. One was LSU's offense is going to be way different than anything we've seen it before. And the other one was I'm buying in on Michigan. Well, what you had was two new guys basically in the play caller role who came in. They were both Joe Moorhead disciples. One is Joe Brady, who quite honestly we knew a lot less about in college football than people knew about Josh Gaddis, who had who had been at Penn State in an on-field role, been at Alabama in an on-field role. And you looked at it and said, okay, Joe Burrow – had a nice finish to last year, the quarterback at LSU, but it wasn't like there was any wow factor there. And honestly, I'm not sure if the receivers they had, although they were hyped recruits, at least two of the three were, they weren't as established as what Michigan had back. And I looked and said, you know what? Uh, LSU's offensive line is a question mark, probably more so than I thought Michigan's was. And but I believed in everything I heard about about Joe Brady from the people I trust who have spent time around Joe Brady. And I did spend some time in, in Baton Rouge and got like a little bit of a more of a close up on what they were doing. That has taken off. I mean, that is arguably his most dynamic offense in the country. 
And as of the first month of the season, Joe Brady is the guy, if you're going to say who deserves the Broyles Award, Joe Brady would be that guy. I mean, it doesn't look like the old LSU anymore. Michigan, on the other hand, it is sputtering. And, you know, everything you wrote Sunday, Monday, I couldn't disagree with. And I don't know to spin it way forward on this. You know, when there's a panic, whether it's at, at Alabama, whether I'm sorry, whether it's at Tennessee, whether it's at Arkansas, or where you see the coaches really struggling, people are quick to push the panic button. I don't know if you're a Michigan fan what you think the answer is. If you're like, man, Jim Harbaugh's not getting it done. We thought it would be better than this. Now, in fairness to Jim Harbaugh, they've won 10 games in three of the four years he's been there. That is way better than they'd done in the previous eight years. It wasn't even close to that. But I just think the expectations were so high. And he also talked it up and stepped on a bunch of toes when he got there around the country. And everybody embraced it. And they have not been able to beat their arch rival. And, man, like you said, all this stuff is not lining up. But what do you think is a better solution if you're Michigan? Like, what do you look at and go, oh, there's an obvious choice? Because there is no really obvious choice of a guy you're going to say, oh, I think that guy can come in here and do a, do a much better job than Jim Harbaugh's done. Is there? No, that's that's the conundrum. And, and that's what I one of the things I wrote about. Um, has he, he has, I mean, up until the last few games, he had improved the program. There's no shame in going 10 and three, uh, three out of the four years. Yes, the rivalry record was not what you would want it to be, but you're not going to fire the guy uh, who's going 10 and three. The problem is if it, I mean, I think the best case scenario this year is eight and four. It could be worse. We'll we'll see how much they improve from this point forward. And at the end of the day, you're not paying the guy seven point five million dollars a year to go eight and four. That's that's you know I think he's the th- one of the top three or four highest paid coaches in the country. That's what you pay somebody who you expect to win the national championship. And at this point, you know this isn't year two. This is year five. We're not seeing anything close to that. Can we bet a dinner on this? Bet a dinner on what? That he's going to win a national championship? Be careful. You've made some pretty bold proclamations before. I'm going, I will bet you a dinner at the national title game or somewhere thereabouts that they will win more than eight games. Done. In. Okay. You're on. Okay. I think they're going to win their, well, I mean, they're playing Rutgers this week. They're playing Illinois. Like they're, they should win their next few games, but you know, what have we seen so I far? I was in there. I was a good team. Yeah, I was coming in. I don't think that's a gimme. They're going to play Penn State later. Obviously, they're going to play Ohio State. Um, yeah, it's it's. It, it, I mean, right now that it's it's crazy to me that they're still ranked in the top twenty-five. That's based on entirely on preseason perception. But to answer your question, that that's the real conundrum here. If you were to create the ideal Michigan coach straight out of central casting go based on resume coming into it it would be him and you know they tried to the the outsider Richrod never warmed up to him he it was a disaster they tried to tap into the Lloyd Carr era with Brady Hoke that didn't work out if you end up deciding Jim Harbaugh's not your guy what what next there are a lot of good as we know I think Matt Campbell is a great coach. I think Jeff Munkin is a great coach. And yet none of those guys or anybody else you could realistically mention 
is coming in, would be coming in with a resume like the one Harbaugh had. So at some point you do have to ask the question and I ask it in the column, is it just that Michigan is not, doesn't have the ceiling that it, its own fan base thinks it does. They're one of the winningest programs of all time. Certainly one of the most prestigious. They won a national title not that long ago, 1997. But times have changed. Can I just interject one thing? Times have changed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Penn State, coming out of a much darker cloud, won a Big Ten championship. Michigan should be able to win a Big Ten championship. That's not a question. I don't know that Michigan... I think there's a little bit of what Nebraska's facing, where will Michigan ever be competing in the same pool that Alabama and Clemson and most notably Ohio State are playing in? That seems less obvious to me. That being said, 2016, Michigan was every bit Ohio State's equal, both on the field and... And, you know, that's the game that came down to the JT Barrett spot. And in talent, they had 11 guys drafted the next year, at least half of which were in the first three rounds. Jake Butt would have been if he hadn't gotten hurt in the Orange Bowl. So it is possible. It's just I don't think that roster today, which is now entirely Harbaugh recruits, is what that roster was in 2016. So no easy answers here. Uh it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting to see how it goes from here. I don't think, as much as people can speculate it, that Michigan is going to fire Jim Harbaugh at the end of this season unless the bottom falls completely out and they're three and nine. But Jim Harbaugh could decide this this has run its course. I need to go try something else. This is now in, in year five, the longest head coaching tenure he's had across four different jobs. Before we move on. I just want to get you one percentage guess. Give me the percent chance Michigan will beat Ohio State this year. I'm, I'm thinking about it. It's a long ways away. You don't know who might get injured between now and then. You don't know. You're going to go like 9%. There's so many you? factors that could go into it. But I think I'm going to put it at less than 20%. Like 9% or like 19%? No, I'll just put it at 20%. Okay. Okay. What about you? Uh, I will put it at 35%. There you go. The game is, I mean, the game well, is in, in <laughs> Ann Arbor. I would have put it at 60% a month ago. Now I'm, I'm going down. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Once you, you know, I got this guy who keeps tweeting me a screenshot of my Big Ten preseason picks where I had Ohio State going a ghastly 10 and 2. Who are the two losses going to be? You know, that's the thing. Like, preseason predictions are fun, but once you actually... Nobody would have picked... Yeah. <laughs> Who thought Iowa was going to beat them and blow them out? Who thought Purdue was going to blow them out last right. year? Right. Also, just... I have them number two in the country now in my top ten. Once you actually get into the season and watch the games, you're supposed to adjust your perceptions. You're not supposed to cling rigidly to, well, I said they're going to go 10-2 and two in, in August when we were all just reading Athlon, uh, so I'm just going to stick to that. We're four games in now. Preseason shouldn't matter. So the actual biggest game Saturday, the game that drew one of the highest, the highest TV rating of the season so far, Notre Dame-Georgia, primetime game and a really good game, certainly more competitive than neither of us had predicted on the podcast last week. What did we learn about the Georgia Bulldogs there that we may not have known? That's a good question. 
because we certainly learned that Notre Dame could compete with them. We certainly learned that the Irish have some playmakers on offense and they have some really good, I think, uh, front seven defensive players. I mean, Georgia, the guys that played well for Georgia were the guys I expected to, maybe with the possible exception of Lawrence Cager, who I don't remember him looking that good at Miami, but, but he was their best receiver the other night. So what did we learn about Georgia? Maybe that offensive line isn't quite as dominant as people thought it would be, although they do have a key injury there. They were down two starters, too. Yeah, so I'm not going to – same with the secondary injuries there as well. So what I ended up writing about was Kirby Smart, who has, despite building this this juggernaut, especially a recruiting juggernaut, but also a team that came pretty darn close to winning the national championship two years ago, still has his skeptics out there. And I was reminded of that late in the game with a very questionable decision to kick a field goal on fourth and less than a yard that if they if they go for it and can end up punching it in for a touchdown, the game's over. Instead, they settle for a field goal. Notre Dame ends up with the ball back at the end and a chance to drive for the win. It was not nearly as egregious, obviously, as that fake punt last year that I think cost them the SEC championship game but it is part of a recurring narrative. And I guess what I would say is I understand why some people doubt him. Now, I think everything else about building and running a football program he has excelled at and and deserves all the praise that could come his way. But that is the one thing that gives you pause. They've had several, they don't have many close games. Most of their games are blowouts, especially a couple of the losses as well. But the times that they do have these close big games, he seems to pucker up a little bit in the fourth quarter. Yeah, um, and look, he's had a couple of the big blowout losses against uh, Auburn, LSU in the last couple of years when they're teams that certainly were every bit as talented as those. I don't think those, uh, you know, we had this discussion of probably in the summer about why I think both of us, I know I did, had Lincoln Riley quite a bit ahead of Kirby Smart in our coach rankings. And I think some of this is is what it is. Um, but look, I, I think it's important. It mattered. To me, this was a, a, a game where I actually think both teams won something. Because I think, I know there's you, we, we shouldn't talk moral victories necessarily, but for Notre Dame to go into that environment, and they were banged up too, by the way, to go into that environment at night in a very hostile setting, and they went toe-to-toe with Georgia. It didn't look like Notre Dame was 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 some un- underdog who wasn't in the class of them. I mean, I came away thinking you and I you have said this a lot to me where you think there's six teams who are clearly national title contenders and there's like this gulf, not my words, not your words, uh, between them and everybody else and I didn't come away thinking that. Like after watching that game, uh, if Notre Dame ends up going 11 and one, and that's the best they can do because they're obviously they're not in a conference title game situation. If they're 11 and one, and it, some of this is going to be beholden to how good some of these other teams end up being, and how much weight some of these wins carry, but uh, you know I think they they acquitted themselves pretty well. Obviously, it would have been better if they won the actual game, but um, there's no shame in losing to Georgia the way they lost in that setting. I think. I would agree, and I think if they are 11-1 and one on the last night of the season, depending on who the other contenders are, they should at least be under consideration. I don't buy this this 
thing that I don't buy either that they have to be undefeated because we don't hold other Power Five teams to that standard. And I and I certainly wouldn't want to hear well they they got embarrassed in the playoff last year, so we can't put them in this year. That would be ridiculous. Uh, but there is a it's, let, let's be realistic here, or let's let's assess them a little bit critically. They don't have a running back right now, and I know Jafar Armstrong's hurt, but they just they're they're putting it all on Ian Book, and and for a half at least, they were able to kind of control the tempo and control the the game just with the short passes, uh, with you know getting the tight end involved without much of a running game. But I don't think they're going to finish eleven and one with no running game. They're going to have to discover that at some point. They can't expect Ian Book and those receivers to be the entire offense every week you know they do play teams that are capable of beating them uh if if that continues to be the case and if ian book god forbid has a bad game all right Stu. uh let's touch on a couple other quick things that that uh i think are i don't know they caught my eye a little bit the game one of the better games of the day was ucf pit now the ucf regular season streak obviously they lost in the in the bowl game last year to LSU, but the UCF regular season streak is gone at the hands of the wildly unpredictable Pitt Panthers and Pat Narduzzi. Uh, this was a fun game to watch. It absolutely was. Yes, obviously UCF's playoff hopes, which were pretty bleak to begin with, are completely gone now. Um, I don't know. After seeing this, what is your assessment of UCF right now? Yeah, I, it's different than I guess what the masses think, and it really is. It's 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 frankly kind of bizarre just how much UCF hate there is out there. People are just delighting in this result, and uh, uh, like for instance, you know, I tweeted a screenshot of the new AP poll where Michigan is ahead of UCF, and it's like based on what? Um, and I said, who who on earth would pick? They Michigan? beat Army. Yeah, there you go. That's their quality. Army's win. not terrible. Army's not terrible. I don't think they're terrible. I but uh, uh, I mean, what is what is what is UCF's great win now this season? It's blowing out Stanford, and I realize Stanford's not Stanford's very horrible. Good this year. So would you say Michigan beating Army in overtime was a better win than um, UCF crushing Stanford? I mean, this isn't exactly like we're talking about. Michelin rated foods here. I mean, at this point, <laughs> so look, I, Army. I, I think that is actually a better win. Army is, to me, a better team right now than Stanford, which is kind of hobbling to the to to each week. All right, let me give you a better example. Texas A and M now has two losses and lost at home to Auburn, and it wasn't as close as the final score, and they dropped fewer spots than UCF did. For losing by one point on the road to a Power Five team that they're not Clemson, but you know Pitt won the division last year. They took Penn State to the wire last week, and just over the last few years, Narducci has he hasn't had great records, but he beat national champion Clemson at their stadium a few years ago. Miami when they were number two in the country and ten and zero. So, I mean, to answer your question. It didn't really change my opinion of UCF at all. I still think they're a really good team. I thought their freshman quarterback, while he had a couple interceptions, also had some incredible throws in that game. And I just don't think there's anything to be all that embarrassed about that you lost. If they'd gone and gotten blown out by Pitt, that'd be a different story. But it was a one-point game. They were in it right till the last second. Um, 
it didn't really it didn't really, now they're not going to go to the playoff but they're still they're still my you know kind of betting favorite to be the group of five new year 16 and i realize boise fans are going to take exception to that but right now to me ucf still the team to beat for the record i think ucf has been really good for college football with this run first under scott frost now josh heupel people care People, I'm, I'm not just talking about the people in Orlando. People care about them and are paying attention to them, and that's a good thing. And so, but it's so much negativity, and yeah. I, I get it. Danny White brought this upon himself. People were really, really took exception to the self-proclaimed national championship thing. I didn't think much of it at the time. I thought it was a fun little gimmick. What's the big deal? They're not actually getting a trophy from anybody, but man, it really set the wheels in motion of this. Uh, people just just delighting in their uh, their their rare defeat uh, the other day. You know what? I this reminds me a little of probably like a decade ago when Boise State really started going and, and got cranked up under Chris Peterson and were winning a ton of games and they got the attention of like blue blood programs. And I remember if you would write about it, I remember you telling me of an exchange where like I don't know somebody emailed you or tweeted at you suck at you a hole or whatever and it was like an alabama beat writer it wasn't even like just a fan it was like that's how pissed off people got people got really ticked off that we in the national media were praising them so much but i don't regret it at all because remember like ucf had a one big legitimate non-conference win which was auburn in the in the bowl game but for the most part they didn't they haven't done what boise and kellen moore did when they beat oregon when Chip Kelly was Oregon's coach, and they beat Virginia Tech when Virginia Tech went on to win the ACC, and Georgia by three touchdowns, and Georgia played in the SEC title game that year. That program at that time was legit. But you're right. It, it's the exact – I've talked about this for years. In college basketball, everybody roots for Cinderella. They root for Loyola. They root for George Mason. In college football, we'll take you up to a certain point. It's cute for a little while, but once – there's actually any notion that you would be in the playoff or in the BCS title game. Oh my gosh, the establishment just gets so ticked off about it. And maybe that's because if UCF were to do that, it would truly take a spot away from a really good Power 5 team. Whereas in college basketball, that's not really the case. But uh, they're a good program. And frankly, it's to me, the Big 12 is wasting a golden opportunity they should have they should have added that program several years ago and they should certainly add them now because they have they've transformed themselves into a very nationally preeminent program. Where do you think they would rank if they were in the in the Big 12 right now? Okay, so here's the thing. The people who say, well, if they had to play a Power 5 team week in week out, they wouldn't be undefeated. That's correct. And we saw that play out both when TCU joined the Big 12 and Utah joined the Pac-12. It took those guys, they took both of them a couple of years to to really become competitive in that conference. And obviously, TCU ended up sharing a Big 12 title, I think, in their third year in the conference. So it didn't take that long, but it's not like they went in there and were their same dominant selves. So what would, now the Big 12, you know, would UCF be on the level of Oklahoma and Texas right from week one? Absolutely not. But I think they could be number three. You would put them ahead of Iowa State. You would put them ahead of Oklahoma State. I don't know. At Oklahoma this point, State. State. Oklahoma State. Oklahoma State. Quitted itself pretty nicely, even in, in the loss to Texas the other day. I would put them at that level. I wouldn't say 
they're absolutely ahead of those teams. I think they would compete with Oklahoma State and Iowa State for the number three spot in the conference. Uh, I think they would compete that. I'm not sure if I would give them... I don't know. I don't know if I would go all the way in on them this year. Because, again, it's not like Mackenzie Milton's out there. I think they're going to have some growing pains with a, with a talented but very young quarterback. I mean, obviously they have a ton of speed, but I'm not quite there yet. And, by the way, the fact that we're saying this should tell you that I don't believe they would be, even if they had won that game the other day, a playoff-caliber team. I'm not, I'm not going there. But I, I do think the committee has short, shorted them, slighted them the last couple of years. Since you sprung a surprise on me, can I throw throw something out, a little audibleizing on the audible? You're going to call an audible on the audible? I'm calling an audible on the audible. I want to play a little game. This, can't, this is a Monday morning thing. You tell me. I think we have two candidates, two very good candidates, for a quote of the year that came both on this, as we're taping, Monday morning. So I'm going to let you pick. The first choice... I'm so siding with it's from the coach at your alma mater, Pat Fitzgerald. Obviously, it did not go that well for the for the Wildcats so far this year, and this is his quote: "I understand there are forty thousand experts on Twitter that can call plays for me. My email address is hashtag I don't care." <laughs> That's very fits. All right, and then the next one is also very fitting of this head coach. It's Mike Gundy, who was on the Big 12 teleconference and was asked by a reporter about a social media regard, media rumor regarding the late T. Boone Pickens. This is Gundy. It's jackasses like you that cause problems. They shouldn't even let you call in. Ah, that's a pretty strong response. Two different situations, okay? Gundy was absolutely right to call that person out. The The rumor he's referring to is that T. Boone Pickens left in his will a gift card to get a haircut. That was on a satire site. It's fake news. It's There's a lot of that that goes around on Twitter and social media these days. So if you are an actual reporter and not... When I first heard this, I thought somebody... The Big, the Big 12 has been pranked before on its coach's teleconference. I thought that's what had happened, but no. A reporter actually felt the need to ask him about that. You got to check that out first. So, okay, Mike Gundy, I think, has a right to say that the guy just passed away last week. Pat Fitzgerald, that's a funny quote. Ha, ha, ha. But I got to tell you, there might not be 40,000 people that can call plays better than Mick McCall, but there's there are others in the profession that could. I think that because it's Northwestern and there's not a huge fan base and, and certainly... He's in 0.0 hot seat, right? He doesn't really get scrutinized, but they've had one of the worst offenses in the country for four or five years in a row, and they just don't change it. And he and he's very stubborn about it. And, you know, at this point, you score seven points against Stanford, whose defense is not good. You score 10 points against Michigan State, who admittedly has a really good defense, and lose 31 to 10. And this is not the first time. They've, they've been a really, really... Uh, low-ranked offense for four or five years in a row. This happens to be the lowest yet. I think it's totally fair for for second-guessers on Twitter or wherever else to suggest that maybe he ought to be looking at a new play caller. 
Well, that was not a direction I expected you to go. I feel like I, I feel like you were channeling some kind of like text exchange that you and Brian Hamilton and Adam Rittenberg probably have going uh, during the weekend or something. I know that 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 you know. I know that this is an opinion shared by Teddy Greenstein, Adam Rittenberg, and and other and certainly basically the entire Northwestern fan base, to be honest with you. But amongst media circles, even the people who cover the team think. Mick McCall has been there since I believe 2008, and they actually did have some really uh, good, innovative offenses at first. It's just that it's the same exact thing they've been running since then, and the recruiting's tailed off a little bit. They don't have wait, the recruiting's uh, tailed off. I thought it had gone the other direction. Those at, at specifically at receivers to have a pretty good run of receivers. They have Austin a good receiver Carr. right there now, and they I know that they are really excited about a freshman they have who they. I don't think he's Calvin Johnson. Well, then what's the issue? Why are they Why are they unable to move the ball? I think you're breaking in a new quarterback who's really inexperienced. And really, there are going to be some growing pains. I think that's what it is. I'm not saying anything you said I, I can disagree or not. Well, I'm they not just had it. a four-year starting quarterback, Leighton Thorson, who was uh, good enough to be drafted. and They the won the Big Ten West. They won the Big it, Ten West. They, they won the Big Ten West in spite of their their defense. Wait, 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 wait! You're going to talk about ceilings on Michigan, and now all of a sudden Northwestern wins the Big Ten West, and all of a sudden you're expecting them to turn into like the Don Coryell San Diego Chargers. <laughs> May I remind you that the team that won the Big Ten West also lost to Akron, so it wasn't like uh, it wasn't like it was the '86 Bears. But nevertheless, look, I. I'm not saying anything against the program in general. They this is the most. Yes, it's, it hasn't been the Rose Bowl season. This is the most successful, the most consistent the program has ever been in its entire history. The fact that they go to bowl, they were 15 and three in the Big Ten the last two years. So credit where credit's due. I'm focusing specifically on the offense. Would you like some numbers? Their offense ranked. Oh, no, I actually. 2000, I'll, I'll be honest. I don't want 2018. Any the, the only people who probably want numbers are Hamilton and Rittenberg and you. I think. I think. I speak for the rest of the audible audience. We've gone too far on this. 2018 Northwestern 108th in total offense. 2017 <sighs> out, Northwestern. He's got wow, they're actually the 55th in offense in 2017. 2016 out, Northwestern 73rd in total people. offense. In 2015, when they actually won 10 games, Northwestern, 116th in total offense. So I bring that all up as a way to say maybe those 40,000 people on Twitter have a point. Wow. Okay. All right. Sorry for bringing it off the rails. Should we go to the mailbag? Uh, yeah, we should. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Though, Bruce, this first one from Mac D in Toronto, he emailed it to me. And I don't know if he intended it for the written mailbag or the audible mailbag, but I like the question. So we're going to go ahead and answer it on the audible mail on the audible. Hey, Stuart, following USC's Matt Fink going from third string to top 10 slayer, how much does the air raid benefit teams who endure an injury to quarterback? Graham Harrell stated his playbook is only 25 to 30 plays as opposed to the 100 plus plays in a pro style system. A backup is more than likely to know all 25 plays and seems to have shown with Keaton Slovis and Fink stepping in and Mike Leach just turning out a new quarterback almost every year with no drop-off. 
Great point by Mac. Uh, I think there is a lot to this. Uh, not only that, they Texas Tech basically, or, or I'm sorry, Texas Tech. USC basically is running four, has four run plays right now. There is not a lot. Uh, it's not to say that they don't need to rep the heck out of it, which they do. Um, I think that is a valid point of how it works. It's not just to say you could plug anybody in. Look, if they had to play Brandon Purdue, who was the emergency quarterback, and he was basically playing safety, but he ran scout team. He was their scout team quarterback, and it, you know, if they were one more injury to Matt Fink, that's what it was going to be against Utah. I, I do think the system is very quarterback friendly, and I think how Graham Harrell teaches it and coaches those guys, I think, makes it even more so. So I think Mac has made a really good point, and that's honestly one of the reasons why I think this is 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 a really good fit. And what makes it such a good fit is, on top of all that, USC has great receivers. And so when they have to go to the, the backup quarterback, in this case really the third-string quarterback because JT Daniels obviously was the starter, I'm sitting there on the sideline right near Michael Pittman and Tyler Vaughn, who are probably two of the 10 best receivers in the country, and they're just talking about Clay Helton walks over to them after the first series and goes, listen, if they keep manning you guys, you guys are going to keep getting the ball. And for a little while, Utah stayed in that and got torched. And so I think that system, coupled with the talent of these receivers, is a pretty dangerous combination. And credit to Matt Fink for for stepping up on a big stage like that. Sometimes I wonder, given everything you just said, why everybody doesn't just run the air raid because it is simple. It, it fits well with the kind of offense that guys want to play these days. And then I watch the Washington State-UCLA game, and I'm reminded that these teams that, that are true air raid teams, and granted there's a lot of different versions of it, and certainly Oklahoma does a good job running the ball in it, they can't. Mike Leach cannot milk the clock. He cannot bleed the clock dry, and that ends up resulting in, in things like that. So it's the positives and the negatives of the air raid. This one, next one's from Drake in South Texas. We didn't mention this result, Bruce, but, but a, a big upset over the weekend. SMU takes down TCU. First win over the Horn Frogs since 2011. Um, and I was really struck by the fact that TCU for the second year in a row really struggling on offense. So he says, seems over the past four seasons, starting around the time Doug Meacham left the program, TCU's had a problem with ball security, and they also seem to lack a true offensive identity. While they have really great skill players and a decent offensive line, it seems they lack discipline and don't work well together. There's no reason to not have a well-balanced rushing and passing attack with guys like Darius Anderson, Shewu Alanilelu, Jalen Rieger, and many others. What do the Frogs need to help stabilize was a very talented yet inconsistent offense. Do you think bringing back Doug Meacham would be a move that could help the offense out? Seems to me the whole thing starts with the fact that since Trevon Boykin left, I guess Kenny Hill was decent, but since then, they have not had a quarterback. Yeah, I think it's that simple, too. And look, I think Max Duggan is eventually going to be a really good quarterback for them. I liked what I saw from him when he was coming you know, through the Elite 11. I, right now, to me, that's their issue, I think, as much as anything, because uh, Drake's right. I mean, their skill talent is is really, really good. Darius Anderson can fly. Shea is a huge, fast, smart kid who I think is pretty dynamic. Rager is phenomenal. They have 
really good weapons. It's just can these can they get the ball to these guys? And I don't think Sonny Cumbie, who a lot of people thought was pretty close to becoming a head coach, is a guy who doesn't know what he's doing. I think he does. I just think right now they are struggling to find the right quarterback and a guy who fits there. And and you know, hey, look. By the way, props to Sonny Dykes. What SM, what's gone on at SMU? I think is quietly one of the better stories in college football this year. I don't think it's any shame for them to lose that way. We got to see can TCU in the next couple of weeks get this thing going? Because if you cannot take advantage of the firepower they have, as good a defensive coach as Gary Patterson is, it's not going to make that much of a difference in that league. I mean, they're going to be not what we've come to expect from them, which is a top 15, top 20 kind of team, because they just don't have the right trigger man to run the show, it seems like. All right, Stu, next question from J.B. Waterman. Hey, guys, thanks for taking the time to do two awesome podcasts per week. And the gentle chiding of Stu last week for sleeping in on Saturdays was maybe my favorite moment so far. Uh, thank you, J.B. After the mistake last week at the end of the ASU-Michigan ASU State game and the very questionable non-review at the end of the Ole Miss game, Ole Miss-Cal game, is the reputation of the Pac-12 officials even worse than it was last year during the Woody Dixon controversy? Hmm. First of all, I'm still going to defend my right to to sleep in if it means missing missing a pregame show and not the actual games. It's egregious, but let's move on to <laughs> Ole Miss and Cal. By we have the way. that's what we have John Walters for. He watches all of game day and he gives you all the the, the highlights and the lowlights of the show. Anyway, um, I think that first of all. I don't understand why there was a controversy at the end of the Cal Ole Miss game. I know their interim AD put out a pretty um, incendiary statement and the Pac-12. The Pac-12 strategy now, this was last week too, seems to be to put out these statements at like 11 o'clock at night Pacific time, <laughs> either acknowledging the mistake or in this case confirming that the calls were correct. I watched the replays and the guy didn't get in the end zone. I, I, don't, I don't understand what the big deal was, but obviously the one last week was bad. I think the, the the thing that irked Ole Miss folks is that it was so close, even if it was the right call, and I'm not, I'm not sure how many, what percentage of those folks who were outraged would concede it was the right call, but just that it was so close to the goal line, how come it wasn't at least reviewed? And the rationale on the other side was that would be like giving Ole Miss a extra timeout, and that could potentially change the outcome of what was going to come next. Yeah, and the Pac-12 in its statement said it would have supported stopping the game for a review. So that maybe should have been done, but it's not an error. It's not like Michigan State where they missed that call and, and that should have been called. So um, plus, if that if if the events had changed, we might have missed Evan Weaver getting his twenty-second tackle of the game on a. You don't often see a walk-off tackle. The, that tackle, short of the goal line, ended the game right there at 0-0-0. Anyway, I think that the reputation was bad even before the Woody Dixon controversy. That made it that much worse. The the glasses ref on Twitter and just, I think, Pac-12 refs was a hashtag at some point. That it's going to be, they may always have this reputation. It's going to be hard to dodge it. But I don't have the data. I think they don't really publicize this data. I have no idea whether they're actually quantifiably worse than the other power five conferences. I think that's just, 
a reputation that you gain that's very hard to shed. I would agree with that. And you know what? It's I, In the case of officiating, you almost never can be right with this stuff because you don't get credit for the calls you got right in the case they got this one right. So, No, the only thing you can do, the best case scenario for the officials is just to not be talked about afterward. So let's not talk about them anymore on this situation and move on to the last question. And this is from Chris in Pittsburgh with a scheduling topic that I'm hoping you can talk about on the show. So here we go. Thank you, Chris. I'm a Pitt fan and have suffered through some seriously brutal non-conference schedules over the past five years. In fact, a stat came out recently indicating Pitt will have played 11 non-conference opponents ranked in the top 15 in those five years after getting UCF at home this weekend. The next closest ACC team in that span is Florida State at four. Wow, Wow. that's a big drop. With all that said, I'm curious of your thoughts on how this type of scheduling can negatively affect the perception of a program. In that same time span, Pitt has also had the third best record in the ACC, and we saw them win the Coastal Division last season. You You wouldn't know it, though, because we're routinely being embarrassed against teams like Penn State, Oklahoma State, etc. Is there even a point to scheduling opponents the way Pitt has? I think most Pitt fans see we're building something. But I get the impression our overall record and lack of success against top 15 teams clouds that view outside of Western Pennsylvania. Chris makes a very good point, Stu. Uh, Sometimes people do these scheduling for monetary purposes. In a lot of cases, they do. Do you think Pitt should pump the gas or pump the brake uh, when it comes to these kinds of going after the going after big blue blood programs and teams that are on top. Well, he's yeah, I mean, he does have a point. Last year's team, I mean, first of all, the whole UCF thing the other day, when I was suggesting they should be ranked higher, the number one response was they lost to Pitt, as if Pitt is San Jose State. Uh, sorry to keep bragging on San Jose State. I should probably just acknowledge for a second what a huge win that was for them at Arkansas. Um, so let's go back to last year. They finished seven and they won their division, but they finished seven and seven. Their non-conference games were Albany, number 13, Penn State, who they lost to 51 to six, number 13, UCF, who they lost to 45 to 14, and number five, Notre Dame, who they lost to respectively 19 to 14. Let's say they had only kept one of those three, uh, top 15 games. And then the other two were just cakewalks. And they finish nine and five instead. I think Pitt would be more respected. Agree? Yes, that is agreed. By the way, don't bag on the Great Danes, please. I know that's your hometown team or your home state team. Uh, it's my home state team and one of my many alma maters. So, wait a minute, really? Yeah. <laughs> what I'm years was that? There for it. Uh, that was kind of my junior year, junior slash probably actually my sophomore year. Can you? I don't know that you've ever actually listed it all out. We don't need to do this now. We don't need well, to do this now. I mean, you do cover college football. I think people would be curious to know. And you talk about the transfer portal all the time. So take us through your transfer portal. Yeah, I was portal. in the portal a lot. Yeah, take so. us through your itinerary. Uh, I went to Marist College, alma mater of Rick Smith's my freshman year. Uh, I went to junior college my sophomore year. And then I went to Albany State. uh This is the Great Danes, not the Albany State in Georgia, which has a little more proud football history. But there are, by the way, Albany State, quite a few coaches now in in 
in major college football who have Albany State backgrounds, guys at Temple, Coach Clawson at, at Wake Forest. So shout out to the Great Danes. Uh, and then I ended up at Miami. There may have been some classes at some other schools mixed in there, but uh, for the for the, in the spirit of brevity, we'll just keep it tight. Okay. Well, by the way, I'm not back to the question. I'm not saying Pitt should should absolutely stop playing those teams. And, and like you said, you can't. They couldn't have predicted when they scheduled UCF that they would be uh, a top fifteen type team. Also, I should note this question was sent in before they beat UCF this past weekend. And I think we can all agree that the exposure they're going to get from that was worth the risk. So maybe they take it to a little bit of an extreme, but I do think in general, if you're you're not scheduling to try to win the national championship, you're not scheduling to have the fewest possible losses. You're just trying to build credibility for your program. Well, non big non conference wins are the way to do that, especially the way the ACC is right now. There's there's almost nothing they can do in in ACC play other than upset Clemson that would gain them widespread respect so in that case it's probably good that they have these chances against a Penn State or a UCF okay well I think we're ready to tee up the audible extra for later in the week Thursdays you can catch the audible extra on exclusively on the athletic app we'll see you next time If you enjoy the Audible, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Rate and review us. It helps get the word out. By the way, you can also find the Audible now on The Athletic. Go to theathletic.com slash theaudible. Our producer is John Hayes. Our theme music is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can find their music on Spotify, wherever you get your favorite music from. Follow me, Stu, on Twitter at SL Mandel. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. And if you haven't done so already, subscribe to The Athletic. You can try it for free for seven days at theathletic.com slash free trial. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh. We'll talk about-